when times in our lives seem confusing and your world appears to be just a little too crazy. Go ahead and take a rest here. Laugh, learn, enjoy a little bit for the lives of others with author and business coach Dennis Mansfield. Then share it with others because joy is just around the corner. Hi, this is Dennis Mansfield. Welcome to the podcast today. Just Around the Corner is a collection of tidbits of interest, historical fact, and travel. Join us today as we laugh, look, and linger a bit, wondering, what is Just Around the Corner? pandemic that we've all been living through has been horrible. In many respects, it is a cultural impact on us. It is a medical impact on us. And it is a governmental impact on us. People are saying they don't want to be at their home or they feel that you have to be at your home or the government is saying that you must be. All these things. It's just incredible. What we don't realize is that there was a time just 102 years ago where the nation went through the Spanish flu pandemic. So in my research about it, I came up with an article that I just was blown away by. And I'd like to share it with you from history.com. You see, we know, and people know, that when a pandemic starts, it normally starts with patient number one. And then it moves through how that patient number one uh, infects and then affects all of the other patients, well, in this case with the Spanish flu, they actually have patient number one. And March 11th of 1918, just before breakfast, that morning, Private Albert Gitchell of the U.S. Army reported to the hospital at Fort Riley, Kansas. And he was complaining about the cold-like symptoms of, you know, sore throat and fever and headache. But by noon, over 100 of his fellow soldiers had reported similar symptoms, making what we believed really would be the first case of the historic influenza pandemic of 1918. Now, History.com does a tremendous job of, of examining it. And, and in the process of the research on it, I found out that the flu would eventually kill 675,000 Americans and an estimated 20 million to 50 million people around the world, proving to be a far deadlier force than even the First World War. So here's the situation. The initial outbreak of the disease reported at Fort Riley, Kansas, was followed by similar outbreaks in army camps and prisons in various regions of the country. The disease soon traveled to Europe with the American soldiers heading to aid the Allies on the battlefields of France. In other words, the American, the American um, soldiers and sailors brought it with them into World War I. In March, for example, 1918, 84,000 American soldiers headed across the Atlantic, and they were followed by 118,000 more the next month. Once it arrived on a second continent, that flu showed no signs of abating. 31,000 cases were reported in June in Great Britain alone. The disease was soon dubbed the Spanish flu due to the shockingly high number of deaths that happened in Spain. Some 8 million it was reported. After that initial outbreak there in May of 1918. Now, the flu showed no mercy for combatants on either side of the trenches. Over the summer, the first wave of the epidemic, History.com tells us, hit German forces on the Western Front. 
where they were waging a final and no-holds-barred offensive that would determine the outcome of the war. It was horrible. It had a significant effect on the already weakening morale of the troops as German armies and their commander, for example, Prince Ruprecht wrote on August 3rd, he said this, poor provisions, heavy losses, and the deepening influenza have deeply depressed the spirits of the men of the 3rd Infantry Division. Meanwhile, the flu was spreading fast beyond the borders of the Western Europe area. Now, due to its exceptionally high rate of, of uh, viral connection and how it was spread and the massive transport of men on land and aboard uh, ships, it went everywhere. By the end of that particular summer, it was in Russia and North Africa and India and China and Japan and the Philippines and even New Zealand would eventually fall victim to this pandemic. History.com did an amazing overview for me because here we're living in 102 years later in 2020 going, this is horrible. Look what's happening. Look what's going on. Not really examining what that Spanish flu epidemic did. Well, here's what happened. By the time the war ended, November 11th, the influenza continued to occur over and over and over, even more vicious in its waves across the world. The return of the soldiers and the sailors eventually started infecting an estimated 28% of the country's population before it finally filtered out. Now, December 28, 1918, is the date that the American Medical Association acknowledges as the end of that once momentous conflict and urged the acceptance of a new challenge, fighting infectious disease. So comes the question for us 102 years later, have our government officials helped us in understanding the impact of it? From a cultural perspective, the answer is absolutely yes. What, what's happening, how it is applied in each government, how it's determined uh, on a maybe a regional or a state level as we have in the United States or a county level. Uh, that, that's all based on the locale. For example, in the states like South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, uh, headed over through Montana to Idaho, there are wide open spaces uh, with a minimum of high density places. Well, in Europe at that time, that was the same. The problem was we had a war where soldiers and sailors were brought in 102 years ago, and they took it everywhere with them. Right now, our moving everywhere, the transportation of people, the uh, use of cars and airplanes, that was the transformational moment this time around. What our country and what our culture will do with that, my guess is that we will come out of the pandemic that we're in right now or that we're coming out of um, as this podcast airs, with a different understanding of what is acceptable. And I find it fascinating that some of the things that we take for granted, such as coming up and shaking hands, may very well be a thing of the past. Uh, the idea of wearing gloves, some type of culturally accepted glove that doesn't make everybody grimace as you snap the elastic band on it and you feel like you're at the doctor's office. No doc. Oh, it's you. It's just you. We're, we're okay. Uh, that those things won't be there. But instead, there may be some alternative that will happen. And, uh, you know, I know that the medical professionals through this administration have talked about uh, the fact that shaking hands and the spread of infectious diseases is somewhat barbaric. However, people are people. And the reality is a hug a uh, uh, handshake, a high five, are part of the culture of all of us. Will that change? It might amend itself, but I don't believe it. it'll change. 
I believe permission will be asked. Would it be okay if I gave you a hug? Would it, are, are you open to a handshake? Things like that, where you're invited in because people feel comfortable again. So what have we learned from 102 years ago to today? A lot. What will we learn from this? A lot more. The Spanish flu really did a number. But right now, what we're going through, I think, will ultimately change and impact us in a positive way for how we handle others and ourselves from a medical perspective and a viral perspective in flu seasons yet to come. That's culture on Just Around the Corner today. If you ever plan Brownstein Brothers from Boise is a natural flow of travel activity for my brother Ken and myself. You've seen the signs on the freeway, brown signs. They signal where certain historical sites are located. Well, Ken and I love to take the time to exit and find out more. Hey, hop in the back seat with us. I think you'll enjoy this. Well, welcome to the Brown Sign Brothers from Boise. I'm Dennis Mansfield and my brother Ken Mansfield. We're together traveling the roads, the highways, and the byways. But for the last two podcast episodes, you've been replaced by your nephew, my son Colin, who when we talked about New Zealand and the travel trip that we that he and I and our families had, he said he couldn't wait to come back on the air. And I think the term was bust your chops. Well, immediately that comes to mind was uh, a Brady Bunch episode where Peter Brady was practicing on something and he called it pork chops and applesauce. So (laughs) Colin, you are like Peter Brady. Uh, Do you remember the one episode where he started singing? Uh, And when it's time to change, you've got to rearrange. Yes. That's how I see Colin. Colin's uh, you're rearranging. Taking, you're taking him down. He's down, down for the count. Now you were an NCO in the army. Yes. He was an officer. Yes. Does that make you feel better to take him downtown? Well, every good officer is trained by a great NCO. <laughs> so Colin was truly a good officer. Uh, West Point, okay, great. West Point, blah, whatever, blah, blah, whatever. <laughs> you know, some of those ROTC TZ guys, ROTC guys, <laughs> they couldn't hold a candle to the West Pointer, and uh, we we truly always honored the West Point. You know, because he always flashed a big ring in our face, and yeah. you know, Colin showed me his at church uh, when he came up and visited one time, and yeah, I, I recognized the West Point ring. Well, I have I have a New Zealand green stone around my neck as we speak. It's not a West Point ring, but Colin got that for me in New Zealand with Hannah, his wife. And you cannot, it turns out, when you're in New Zealand, buy them for yourself. You have to buy them for somebody else. Oh. That's the that's part of the Brown Signs legacy that we learned while we traveled on or about the North Island and the South Island. So you know what? We'll get him back on the show, and we'll make sure that. Uh, uh, pork chops and applesauce can happen at that time. Right on. Is that good to go? I love Peter Brady. <laughs> well, I tell you, we're we're, we're going to transition just uh, a wee bit into a very sorrowful actual story. Mm. It's certainly it's a story of families, sure. uh, not ours. It's the families in the 1800s that had a very difficult time. You and I were traveling uh, on the road, and we saw the brown sign that said Donner Pass. And we actually passed the pass. We had to do a turnaround to go back and find out for, for whatever reason that the sign 
inviting people off was like, turn now, ah, you know, there's a 15 wheeler or whatever, how many numbers of wheels those big car, you know, char, uh, trucks and uh, things have. And, and, and we, and we went on, we turned around, we got off, we came back. Right. Uh, I had been there before. Susan and I had had been there. We'd taken our kids. I don't believe you had been there until Never that time. Never had. That was the first time I was there. Now, so that our listeners to the episode today would understand, Donner Pass was what? If I recall, it was the pass to get into California. Uh, and this, this uh, group had gone uh, a little bit later in the season. And it was it happened to be a horrible... Uh, winter season, early snows, and they were uh, caught in the mm. pass uh, by mm. avalanche on one side, and then they just could not go back the other way, uh, and so it became a horrible nightmare. They ran out of food and water. Uh, it was you know terrible uh, temperatures, and people were dying left and right. It was tragic, and I I had uh, traveled that that route many times coming from where we live in Boise, Idaho down to Southern California, see friends and family. Sure. But I, I I, think the first time we got off as a family and looked, I could not believe that the, the, the dad inside me saying, I, I would die for you. I would do anything for you. And what in reality happened was that people did die. And then the people um, stripped them mm-hmm. and ate them. Ate them. It's the only flesh. food source they had. And I'm sure... The decision to do that had to be, uh, it's life or death, and yeah, you know, it, it's just once you once you take the skin off a piece of meat, you can possibly lie to yourself and say, oh yeah, this is a, from a calf or this mm-hmm. is from a, a deer, you know, not thinking it was your yeah. father's left arm or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what was fascinating for me was to watch you can walk along. The area, the, the time that you and I went through it, there was still a little snow on the ground. Sure. And I watched you walk up to the monument that had to be, what, seven stories tall? Easily, yeah. Uh, built in the 1860s uh, or 1870s. Yep. And, and to watch your body language say, I cannot believe anybody survived this ordeal. It was amazing. Uh, to think of, you know, we, we made it in my <clears throat> 2005 Dodge Ram truck. Uh, at 70, 80 miles an hour. Can you imagine doing that in a uh, either a, a, a covered wagon? Covered wagon yeah. pulled by two or three horses. They already yeah. ate all their horses and they ate whatever else they ate, yeah. uh, not knowing how much longer they would be up there. But then to think of that was the only way they could get through and they had to wait till spring thaw. And it's just amazing. Yeah, the, the, the monument itself was beautiful. The design of it, the. Um, Beauty in the architecture of it, the artistic uh, sculpturing of the bodies uh, of the wagons, and the the monolith itself is just—it was stunning. It just took my breath away to think of however many years that was, 140 years ago ish, to think that the, that's what these folks had to do, and all they were doing was trying to you know f- pursue a better life, a better life. Well, for Brown Sign Brothers from Boise, we travel around a lot. We see things. In this particular time, we not only saw it, but we felt it. And and I think if you're traveling out and about and you see signs that are brown, they say historical marker, stop, pull off, go over and see what that is. Because, Ken, you and I, as we've done this time and time again on our travels, we've been quite surprised, haven't we? 
Oh, we've been blessed in so many different ways to see uh, history uh, and to see how people, you know, they mark it. They, they say, this is the spot where this happened. And it was important to them, uh, important enough to mark it, and then important enough for our government to go through and say, yes, we agree, this is an important site. So it's, it's, it's worth your stop. So ladies and gentlemen, as you're out and about, see that brown sign? Think of us, the Brown Sign Brothers from Boise. Pull off and take a look. Welcome to Movies with Meg. Films are the parables of our lives. They always have been. Stories that tell us who we are, who we aren't, and who we can become. Join Meg Rowe and me now as we look at the films we find interesting. We hope you do as well. States or in the world, when they hear that song, they know what we're about to talk about. See, the classic films that we have the joy of uh, struggling with and finding things that appeal to us in our culture of today, we really have to bring in The Godfather. Absolutely. You know, I didn't watch The Godfather until last year and was sucked in by the drama and the texture and the storyline of the movie. There really was a texture to the film. In fact, so much so that uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who was the producer and the director of it, uh, was told in the early um, kind of reviews of the first few scenes, uh, the dailies, what are you doing? This thing is too moody. This is not what we wanted. But he had to fight for his job because he saw the vision of what the Godfather could be. Yeah, they wanted a more salacious gangster movie. And I think he saw it more as an epic, a, a tale of a family, a tale, a story of behind the scenes of the gangsters. Uh, and, and so there, there were some pretty brutal, bloody scenes, but that wasn't the whole point of the movie, which I think is interesting and humanizes the the men and women that they portray in a real way later years later, the television show, the Sopranos picked up on that. It's gangsters living their life, uh, going to the grocery store, gangsters living their life, having dinner or Christmas vacation. Well, in the Godfather, it takes it over a period of time of Vito Corleone, Vito Corleone, uh, played by Marlon Brando, but really, you don't even see Marlon Brando. You see Vito Corleone. And in that capacity, it, he, he, his character flows into every scene. There's a feel to it. And what's very interesting is it opens up at his daughter's wedding. Yeah, he, he's celebrating this big moment. And like all Italian families, there's food and there's dancing and there's fun and I have Italian family, and spending time with them is just a big event. And, uh, you know, to be interrupted for business, you it would really have to be something very important. 
And and so that's that classic scene that even, you know, in Zootopia they copy and and I feel like everyone knows that scene. Well, say it. Give, give, give it. Because really, if you think about it, it's given all the time in films always. And it is, you come to me on the day of my, fill in the blank. Daughter's wedding. Daughter's wedding. Or whatever. Whatever it happens to be. Uh, and of course, the humbled servant in front is just, yes, Don, yes. And of course, in, in The Godfather, in the original, um, uh, <laughs> there is a real tense moment. Because the man who's come to the Godfather on the day of his daughter, daughter's uh, wedding, is talking about his own daughter who had been beaten by two thugs and uh, horribly mistreated. And so this man, who himself was an undertaker, asks the Don, the patron, to be able to help him with this. And Vito Corleone looks at him and says, you've never needed me before. You've never come to me before, but you come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding and you want this. Why should I do it? Well, it is a remarkable plate at the very beginning of the film. Now, uh, we'll leave it for the end of the film on Godfather 1 because when they made it, they only had the Godfather. It turned out that they were going to make two more, Godfather 2 and Godfather 3. So they then call it the Godfather and a lot of people refer to it as Godfather 1. Um, fascinating thing though on casting when Francis Ford Coppola began looking at actors Michael Corleone you, you see him he's dark haired he's Italian but who do they in interview they wanted to have Robert Redford which is just the weirdest pick and I'm so glad he didn't get chosen could you imagine that I mean it would have been a totally different movie and, and completely unbelievable oh I mean we would not as good movies ask us to do to willingly suspend our disbelief we we cannot have done that but there's even another one ryan o'neill now ryan o'neill is, is farrah fawcett's ex-husband farrah fawcett was an actress in the 60s 70s and 80s but ryan o'neill was in the in a movie called love story and think of him as a gangster having had the imprint of who ryan o'neill on tens of millions of people would have been an absolute joke it just would not have worked. And so they were seriously considering. Why? Oh, well, star power. You know, you pull someone in that you think is going to bring the money. You're going to hopefully have a successful film. One of the things that uh, that Coppola did was he took advantage of mistakes. Uh, th there was a one point in the movie where Vito Corleone is sitting there and a cat comes up on his lap. Do you remember that yeah, scene? Yeah, they actually, the cat was hanging around the set. And so they decided to bring him in to the actual movie. And he sat um, on his lap the entire scene, the entire day he hung out. And now this cat, who was a street cat, street cat. Uh, is in this movie. It's so funny. And, and when you think about how um, at one point, they were talking about uh, what should we do because the book says there's a horse's head that has to be put inside of a bed. And Coppola uh, looked at it and he said, well, anything we do that's not a horse, a real live horse who becomes real dead, it, it's going to look phony. Yeah, so, so they, they went to a dog food factory and they got a real horse head. And so the scene 
that you see is really as grotesque as you think it is because it really is a horse's head. I wonder at the end of the film if it says anything about not hurting animals. Uh, for the there was only one made. animal hurt in the filming of this. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, interesting uh, trivia sideline: the actor who plays the movie mogul who wakes up with a dead horse. Oh yeah, had he is actually in Love Story and is the father of uh, Ali McGraw. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, who Ryan O'Neill, who could have been in The Godfather with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, knew very well. So, so The Godfather unfolds, and it's the story of Don, who is who's viciously attacked and um, at a certain point, at a certain point, uh, uh, Michael, who did not want to be in the family business, who was a, was a real live World War II hero. Yeah. I really want to say that I I feel like the movie is more about Michael Mm -hmm. and his rise in the family and his struggle with wanting to be a part of the family. When we return, we're going to talk about the sons and the daughter of Vito Corleone and how the character building in that. In the next episode, we'll we'll talk about how they did what they did. It's an amazing assortment of actors, actresses that came aboard. Meg, uh, this is a story of godfathers. Do you have a godfather? I don't know. I don't know if I have a godfather. Did I ever get a godfather? I don't know. We'd have to ask your parents and see. May I be your godfather? Sure. Sure. You come to me on the day of my recording? (laughs) Yeah. Good to have you with us, Meg. Thanks. History is chock full of fascinating historical things. Odd things? Yes, I think pretty odd. For example, if you were to ask the average American, when did slavery end? They would say after the Civil War. Okay, that makes sense. That's what the Civil War portion of it was fought over, truly. But if you were to refine that question and say, when did the United States Congress abolish the African slave trade? They would look at you and probably say, after the Civil War, after you know, the Confederates were brought back into the Union and after, at some point, ready or not, here we go. Fun facts. Absolutely not. Congress abolished the African slave trade in 1807. 1807. 50-plus years, way before the Lincolns and the Douglases and the Jefferson Davises were ever involved. You see, the U.S. Congress passed an act to prohibit the importation of slaves into America, to any port, to any place, to any jurisdiction in the U.S., from any foreign kingdom. And and so the first shipload of African captives to North America certainly arrived in the 1600s in Virginia, and it happened throughout the 17th century. But by the time it got into the 1800s, uh, the, the revolution had been fought. We were getting ready to really establish ourselves as an economic power. And really, after that revolution, people began to say, why are we bringing slaves in? This is crazy. So after the war, uh, slave labor was not any more a crucial element to the northern economy. And certainly the northern states passed legislation to abolish it. Then finally it got to the, uh, in January of 1807, it got to the House of Representatives, the U.S. House. And 
the, the it was unbelievable that the Southern congressman joined with the Northern congressman and they said, no more, no more slave trade. Now, what they didn't say was, we'll get rid of the slaves we have. What they didn't say was, of those slaves that we have that were procreating and having families, we would get rid of the slaves or free the ones that were the babies. No, they kept saying, we have enough now, we'll use what we have. So it was a different mindset. Sure, Congress abolished the African slave trade. Certainly the North and the South came together on it. But in the last analysis, when it came to the issue of human beings, well, who were slaves, uh, the North and the South had incredibly different perspectives. And really, one of the greatest movies I've ever seen that really brings up the value of that human being that's an African who was captured by the slave trade is a movie that Steven Spielberg did at the behest of his mother. His mother, who had become an evangelical Christian, saw a a book called La Amistad and said, Oh, you've got to make this into a movie. I think it was the only time she ever, you know, Steven Spielberg's mother badgered him to make a film, but uh, he looked at it and he was really impacted by it. So he made the, the, the film Amistad and it deals with a very unique case. And it deals with the 1840s, just 30 plus years after the 1807 um, uh, ceasing of the slave trade in America. And what happened was, at the last part of the 1830s, right before 1840, 53 slaves uh, had been captured in Africa, and they had been left in Cuba uh, aboard the Amistad, which was a schooner for, a, uh, you know, the slavery purposes. And and at that point, Sinke, who was one of the African, free African men who had been enslaved, rose up, and they ended up, he freed himself, he freed the other slaves, and they planned a mutiny. In that mutiny, on July 2nd of that particular year, in 1839, in the midst of a storm, they killed all the people that were there except for two. They killed the captain of the vessel and crew members, and they threw them overboard. Only two crew members were kept alive. And those two crew members ended up, because the Africans knew, and these were just citizens of Africa, they knew they didn't know anything about how to, how to do the, the ship. So they had these two people, and they said, you, you take us back to Africa, and we will save your life. So these two particular individuals, uh, Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montez, uh, they were two Cubans. They said, yeah, we'll help you, all right. And what they did is they took the slave trip, uh, the slaves uh, in the ship all the way up to uh, Massachusetts. And then when they brought him in, they brought him into America. And they actually escorted him uh, um, down to New London, Connecticut. And when they did that, the US, USS Washington, which was a U.S. Navy brig, seized the Amistad and brought it into New London, Connecticut, freed these two, Ruiz and Montez, and then they put everybody else um, in, in under uh, lock and key as prisoners. And in that process... The question became, are they slaves? Who are they? What are they? Were they enslaved free men? So at that point, in February of 1841, these slaves were still imprisoned after one and a half years. And the U.S. Supreme Court began hearing the case of the Amistad. And interestingly enough, a sitting member of the House of Representatives who had been in the House 18 years, but previously had been president of the United States. 
His name is John Quincy Adams. He was brought in as the attorney on behalf of the Africans, and he he argued before the Supreme Court. And then on March 9th, 1841, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Africans that they'd been illegally enslaved, that they had really um, exercised their right as free men to fight for their freedom, and they were let go. They went back to West Africa. Some of the Africans there helped establish a Christian mission in Sierra Leone. And most like Sinke returned to their homelands in the African interior. One of the survivors, who was a child when taken aboard the Amistad as a slave, he eventually returned to the U.S., originally named Margu. She studied at Ohio's integrated and coeducational Oberlin College in the late 1840s before returning to Sierra Leone as an evangelical missionary. Sarah Margu Kinson. Fascinating story. Odd bits of history about things that happen to people where redemption is involved. I say Billy the Kid. You say horrible Western uh, killer. I say to you, John Wesley. You say, oh, wasn't he an well, evan evangelical minister? Oh, yeah, he was. Well, what about John Wesley Harden? I have no idea who John Wesley Harden is. Most people would say, well, he was a gunslinger. And he killed more people than Billy the Kid. John Wesley Harden, named for the great evangelist by his father, who was a pastor, ended up being one of the top gunslingers of the Wild West. And an amazing moment happened in 1894 after he was serving uh, 15 years. Finally, when they caught up with him, he was serving 15 years and he was really a vicious, vicious man. But he, they figure he killed over 40 people. Think about that. And at, at a certain point, uh, he was pardoned. Because of the good works he did, he ended up in prison becoming an attorney. And John Wesley Harden began to help other criminals and it was just remarkable to see the change around in this guy's life. And so in the process of all that he did uh, and did for others uh, about defensible shootings and so forth, he was spared the gallows. And and he, he was given a life sentence ultimately. But after his pardon, uh, John Wesley Harden moved to El Paso and became that attorney that he always wanted to be legally before the bar. And... The sad thing is that though a culture can redeem a person and a person can have his life or her life changed, a lot of the effects of what they did when they were hardened criminals or whatever they were can catch up. And in the case of John Wesley Harden, he was practicing law, went down for lunch. I've been at the place where this happened, and he was sitting there having something to eat and a beverage, and a man came up and shot him in the back, killed him. His life was over. So when we think about redemption and we think about the changes in other people's lives, the odd things of history are they don't always go the way we think they're going to go. But if we stated the principles of the fact that there is redemption, there is pardon, there is serving your time and getting out, there is uh, slavery and um, uh, a, a mutiny and all these other things that once examined can be determined as the right thing to do, um, and ultimately redemption fl really flows from that. I think it's a wonderful story. The odd bits and pieces from history today on our episode. Just Around the Corner is a feature of DennisMansfield.com. 
For more information on the travel episodes, please text Brown Sign Bros, that's Brown Sign Bros, to 72000, or Brown Sign Faith to 72000. Visit Amazon.com for books by Dennis Mansfield. I think you'll like them. Many thanks to Michael Seals for production work and for the original music. Acknowledgements to the Traveling Wilburys, to Nat King Cole, and assorted rock and rollers whose songs we occasionally sprinkle throughout the episodes. Kudos to Meg Rowe, History.com, Ken and Colin Mansfield, and my bride Susan for their inspiration and information, for their hard work and encouragement to make possible just around the corner. And finally, a wink and a nod to Kevin Miller in the morning on KIDO Radio, Boise, Idaho. Till next episode, this is Dennis Mansfield.